Hey, uh, we're in a brand new series today that is going to be a little different than what we normally do around here. You might actually feel a little bit like um, we're in a classroom setting, and I'm going to give you a lot of information, uh, but you guys are smart people because you come to this church, so you will get it, right? Um, we're going to do, over the next three weeks, we're just going to do a, 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 just a really brief Um, overview, a comparative study of religions, three in particular. I want to shed some light on what those religions believe, those three religions in particular, Uh, but also as we learn some of these things, it will also shed light on Christianity. It will also help us get a better handle um, on what we believe. And I just want to kind of start off with a little bit of an introduction um, with, with two common mistakes when it comes to world religions and when it comes to studying world religions. Uh, the first mistake, um, some of you have made and you didn't even realize it. The first mistake is to try and make all the world religions the same. To, to try and lump them in all together, that all religions basically teach the same thing. And there are good reasons why we do this. We kind of want to keep the peace. We don't want to create you know, more conflict um, between religions. But, but what at, ends up happening when we do this is that we actually lose the distinctives of the specific religions. Um, some of you have heard of or you've seen the parable of the elephant before. In fact, if you were here last October for our Missions Revolution weekend, you heard Dr. Todd Aarons talk about this. And actually, some of the stuff that he taught us during that weekend was the genesis for this series. I heard some things. We wrestled with some things. I thought, we need to talk about that. So that's kind of why we're talking about it. Uh, But the parable of the elephant comes from uh, Buddhist scriptures. And um, it's taught, uh, there's five blind men. And they're all touching the same elephant. The one um, that, that is near the head thinks it's a pot. The one um, by the tusk thinks it's a spear. The one by the ear thinks it's a winnowing basket. The one that's by the leg thinks it's a tree trunk. The one at the, at the tail thinks it's a rope. And this, this parable is often told um, to teach that all religions basically teach the same thing. Each belief system has a different perspective, but what they're dealing with, what they're touching, is the exact same thing as all of the other rules. The same God, the same rules, the same way to heaven. Um, What most people don't know is that Buddha actually taught this to teach the exact opposite of that. Buddha taught the parable of the elephant not to emphasize the sameness of religion, but to say that all other religions are blind and he came to reveal the truth that it's an elephant. He came to reveal reality. So you can't discern what other religions teach by emphasizing what's similar and trying to lump them all together. That feels nice. It feels warm and cozy and fun. Let's just all get along. What you do to discern what other religions teach is you actually look at what they say themselves. You look at what their scriptures say. You look at their own account and familiarize yourself with those distinct teachings. The second mistake that that I often see is often made by Christians, and I is one, so I can say this, okay? The second mistake that, that Christians make is we often view and paint other religions in their worst light. Um, many Christians don't pause long enough to learn what others find compelling in their beliefs because we're so committed to ours or we're afraid 
or we're just lazy, that we don't stop to think, what is so compelling to a billion people about Islam? What is so compelling about that? And until you understand what's so compelling about that, you don't understand quite yet. This is, this is actually a great practice for all kinds of debates today. If you can't see what's compelling in a position opposite of yours, you don't have to agree with it, don't have to believe it, don't have to like it, but unless you see what's compelling in another argument, you haven't understood it yet. An analogy is, is going to help here, and I'm going to sit down. Imagine, imagine you're an art collector, okay? You have this, this huge collection of art, and you believe one of the paintings is the best of them all. It, is, it, it outshines all the other. When people come to view your collection, are you going to dim the lights on all the other paintings and shine a spotlight on your favorite? I would argue if you did that, that's a sign you're not very confident in your favorite. If you have to dim the lights on all the competitors to make your favorite look better, you aren't very confident that, that, that your favorite is going to be their favorite. A truly assured art collector is going to turn the lights on full, make sure all the paintings are seen in their best light because they're confident people will come to the same conclusion they have. And I think, this is just my opinion, as a follower of Jesus, I think you should understand what other religions believe, not because you agree with them, not because we're looking to follow them, but because we're confident in what we believe. And we better understand them the more light we shine on those differences. And when we shine more light on those differences, the more beautiful Jesus becomes. So that's what I want to do. I want to shine a big old light for the next few weeks. Today, I'm going to shine a light on the Eastern faiths, Hinduism and Buddhism. I'm going to give you a ridiculously short summary of the key ideas of each of them, and then we'll look at the differences between them. Next week, we're going to spend the entire day on Islam. And then next, the, the third week of the series, we're going to ask the question, can all religions be true? And if they can't, how would you ever work out which one is true? All right? So get your notepad out, get your pencil for some of you, okay? You just thought you were going to come and it was going to be an easy message and you'll go watch the Super Bowl tonight. No, I'm going to make you think, okay? Let's start with the fundamental question shared by Hinduism and Buddhism. How can I be free from this tragic world? Universal question, right? Like this, it's not unique to these religions, but it's also not surprising that entire belief systems search for an answer to this question. And Hinduism and Buddhism both have a diagnosis for this question and a solution to this question. Here's how Hinduism responds to that question. You can, you can summarize their response in four words. Brahman, Atman, Samsara, Karma. Okay, Brahman. Uh, Brahman is the universal spirit, the animating principle behind the universe. It's not quite God the way that we think of it. it uh, you know, a personal being that you pray to, uh, that knows your name, that has a plan for your life. Hinduism thinks of God more as an impersonal spirit somewhere out there. But they also believe there's a little bit of Brahman in you, which is your Atman. We would call it our spirit or our soul. In, in Hindu theology, Atman is a bit of Brahman that lives in each of us. Okay, Think Star Wars, the force. Okay, 
There's, there's, we're all one with the force, right? That's kind of the idea. You're connected to Brahman somewhere out there. They use actually two analogies to explain this, fire and water. Brahman is the great fire. Your Atman is a spark that has to get back to the fire. Um, in, in the water um, analogy, Brahman is the great vast ocean. Atman is just a drop. You're, you're just a drop that needs to go back, that needs to be reabsorbed into the ocean. And according to Hinduism, the problem is your spirit, your Atman is trapped in this silly physical world, in this body that you inhabit. Your body's just an illusion. You, you, the real you is Brahman and you need to get back there in some way for it. And then they call this problem samsara, which just means running around. Samsara means running around. This is where they get the idea of reincarnation, right? Your spirit lives this life, your Atman lives in this life, and then you die. And depending on how you live this life, you're reborn in another. You might be reborn as a frog or a tree or an Eagles fan, depending on how you lived, okay? <laughs> but depending on how you live, in Hinduism, all reincarnation is bad. It's bad because you're just running around. You're just running around. Um, you've heard people joke about you know, reincarnation. I was an Egyptian princess in a former life or something like that, as if it's a good thing. In Hinduism, it's a terrible thing because you came back. You didn't unite with Brahman and you're just gonna continue to run around. You're still a drop that needs to return to the ocean, that needs to return, a spark that needs to return to the flame. Now, what keeps you coming back? The fourth doctrine. Karma. This is the one that we're more familiar with. Karma translates as action. But they teach it as the principle built into the universe that meets every one of your actions with a reaction, right? The universe is designed so that everything you do has a, has a feedback loop. If you've been good, it brings good. If you've been bad, it brings bad. Here's how their sacred scriptures describe the doctrine of karma. As a man acts, so does he become. Whoever does good becomes good. Whoever does evil becomes evil. By good works, a man becomes holy. By evil, he becomes evil. Whatever deeds he does on earth, their rewards he reaps. From the other world, he comes back here to the world of deed and work. This is Hinduism's diagnosis for suffering, for pain in your life. Your bad in a former life is what's caused your suffering in this one. Like you might think that children should never have to suffer. They would teach, well, the reason that child is suffering because they were bad in a former life. The thing you need to know is that a devout Hindu genuinely finds explanation and comfort in that idea. It, it, it explains pain. It explains tragedy in this world. Buddhism's diagnosis is a little different, different, but it still tries to, to answer the same question. Buddha was a man. He was a prince in northern India, raised in a beautiful palace, life of luxury. As an adult, outside of the palace one day, he was confronted with poverty. He was confronted with suffering in his own kingdom. He saw two beggars without any options. He saw a sick man about to die. He actually saw a dead corpse on the side of the road. And he was so shocked by this, 
He decided to leave his kingdom and wander around the Ganges for the next six years, studying with Hindu gurus to find the answer to the problem of suffering. Sounds fun, doesn't it? Um, He felt like Hinduism's answer was lacking after that six years. So he decided to meditate under a Bodhi tree for days until he eventually discovered the answer. And the moment when he discovered that answer was enlightenment, from which he got the name the Buddha, which means the enlightened one. His enlightenment, his um, solution, or his answer to the problem of pain and suffering is summarized in the four noble truths. The first two are the diagnosis, The last two are the solution, okay? First noble truth, all existence is suffering. And when he said all, he meant all. He taught his disciples pain and pleasure is both suffering. Now, why pleasure? Because if you experience pleasure, it's fleeting. It comes and it goes. And if you're too attached to those pleasures, when when it goes, you're left empty, Again, you're left sad, you're left suffering. So all existence is suffering. Second noble truth is the explanation of the first. The cause of suffering is human desire. The tragedy, the pain, the suffering that we experience is not caused because you lost your job. It's not caused because you got a cancer diagnosis. It's caused because you desire to keep that job. It's caused because you want to be healthy. Your suffering isn't caused because you lost a loved one. It's caused because you desire that relationship. It's, and can you see the logic in that? Like if you, if you could just didn't have desire for that job, for that health, for that relationship, then you wouldn't experience this at, at suffering. It wouldn't be suffering to you. That's the diagnosis, okay, for Hinduism and Buddhism. What's the solution? Here's the solution. Um, Hinduism has a threefold solution, and you get to take your pick. You get to choose. It's not like you, you don't have to do all three. You can choose your path of salvation. The three paths are action, knowledge, and devotion. Um, and this is all laid out in the Hindu scriptures, the Bhagavad Gita. It's not quite as long as the New Testament. It's about the length of the four Gospels. And it's just a long conversation between one of the Hindu gods, Krishna, and a guy named Prince Arjuna. Krishna appears, and he explains the way of salvation to the prince. The first way is action. That just means you do good actions, you build up better karma, and you get a better reincarnation until your soul can eventually return, your Atman can eventually return to Brahman. Um, The problem is, according to Hindus, it's really, really difficult to do enough good You can't do enough good to get back to Brahman. So there's a second path, and that path is knowledge. Krishna actually says this is the most difficult of the paths. It's all about ascetic contemplation. Um, If you've ever seen a movie or documentary with a Hindu holy man, and he's painted different colors, and it looks like he hasn't eaten for weeks, and he's just kind of in this meditative trance, that's the path of knowledge. He's trying to reunite his Atman with Brahman through knowledge, through thought, through through ascetic contemplation. And if that doesn't work, which according to Krishna more than likely won't, there's the third path, devotion. And, And this is the perfect path. Krishna says, if you devote yourself to one of thousands of their favored gods with 
absolute commitment, saying your prayers, having the God's name on your lips throughout the day, offering sacrifices to that God, meditating in the name of that God, that God will be your deliverer. That God will be your salvation. Here's how they explain the third path. He whose mind is fixed on my personal form, always engaged in worshiping me with great and supernatural faith, is considered by me to be most perfect. For one who worships me, giving up all his activities to me and being devoted to me without deviation, engaged in devotional service and always meditating on me. For him, I am the swift deliverer from the ocean of birth and death. That's, that's the path of devotion. Now, one thing is clear from all three of these paths. It requires an enormous amount of effort on your part. You got to do it right. And you got to be perfect. The rigor of Hinduism is clear. And it's only surpassed by Buddhism's solution. Remember, for Buddhism, the thing that causes you suffering in this world is your desire for things of this world. So what's the solution? Remove desire. Get rid of desire. The goal of Buddhism, the nirvana they speak of, is entirely through negating and detaching from human desire. This is the third noble truth, the end of suffering through detachment from desire. Buddha said, the end of suffering is the complete cessation of that very desire. The, the giving it up, relinquishing it, liberating oneself from it, and detaching oneself from it completely. And again, it's kind of hard to argue with the logic, okay? So for example, if a mom loses her child and can somehow get to the point where she no longer desires a relationship with that child, she no longer suffers. Is it heartless? Yes. Is it logical? Yes. If, if you can detach from your desire to have a wealthy, prosperous life, your poor health and empty bank account won't bother you as much. <laughs> right? I mean, you'll experience peace in this world. How do you get there? How do you do that? Fourth noble truth, the eightfold path to end of desire and suffering. Just when you thought you only had to do four things, the fourth thing is eight things, right? They're actually pretty easy to follow, and you can, you can look these up, but we can spend a lot of time on all eight. But the bottom line is this. If you practice the eightfold path, do all eight things on a daily basis. If you do them well, you can arrive at complete detachment from desire. And when you get there, you'll be able to live in this world with absolute emotional, spiritual, mental, and relational equilibrium. Joys won't tempt you. Suffering won't harm you because you, you're not attached to anything. Now, Here's how seriously Buddhists take this. There's an instructive Buddhist text that's actually an account of Buddha's death, right? Um, and according to the text, he's very old. Um, he's lying down, surrounded by his disciples. He's still teaching them. It's very peaceful, very tranquil. And, and eventually he breathes his last breath. Now, what do you think his disciples did in that moment? 
they start weeping and wailing and crying, right? Do you see where this is going? One of them pipes up and says, wait a minute. Didn't he teach us to detach from everything? Oh, yeah. We're not being very good Buddhists right now. And in that, it's very instructive for Buddhists. In that moment, they detach even from their feelings for their master. Wipe away their tears and find perfect equilibrium, equilibrium and move on with their life. Question, how different is that from the account of the death of Christ? What do we call the death of Christ? The passion of the Christ, right? I mean, the, the, the disciples are undone. Jesus screams from the cross. He tells John, take care of my mom. There's just so much emotion. There's so much tragedy. There's so much humanity in it. I, I, I don't mean this disrespectfully. Jesus would have made a terrible Buddhist because he was full of emotion, rage at injustice, weeping over his friends dying, loving the little children that come to him, right? So those, are, those aren't the only difference. I want to pivot here. I want to explain some of the difference between Eastern religions and Christianity and I don't want to do that by pointing out what we think is wrong with them. I want to turn it around, and I want to point out what they say is wrong with us. Okay? I just want to show you the differences, okay? The first thing they find wrong is the ridiculous Christian teaching on the goodness of creation in the body. In Hinduism and Buddhism, the goal is to detach. The goal is to escape the body, because your body is just an illusion, the goal is to escape creation because you want your soul to return to Brahman as soon as possible. And in Buddhism, complete detachment from all sensation is the goal. So the problem they have with Christianity is our belief in the goodness of creation and the physical body. I mean, just the first chapter, Genesis 1. Do you know how many times the word good appears? Seven. Light, good. Water, good. Vegetables, good. Kinda, okay? Meat, good, right? And just in case we miss it, at the very end, it's very good. <laughs> Six goods, one very good. What's the author of Genesis doing? From the very beginning, he's setting out as the first doctrine that creation, material reality is good. The body is good within a Christian framework. Your body, the stars, the, the food, creation, it's a little bit like this wedding ring of mine, okay? Uh, many years ago, Jana promised me that this is made of gold. I believe her, right? But the, the, the worth of this, the gold is good, but the worth of this is not the gold to me. The worth of this is the promise of love. It's the promise of commitment, it's the promise of covenant. That is way better than the value of the gold. The Bible teaches that we can live in this physical world, seeing all things as gifts of love from our creator. That's why creation is good. That's why your body is good. That's radically different from Hinduism and Buddhism, which leads to a completely different idea of what the problem is. They say the problem is, is material creation. Christianity says the problem isn't material creation, it's what we do with material creation. 
It's how we approach it, elevate it, or value material creation in relation to God. When, when we elevate created things above God, we're in dangerous territory. When we elevate created people above God, we're in dangerous territory, right? Or when we don't think about how we use created, when we don't, when we think about, we don't think about how we use material created things the way God wants us to. The problem isn't creation itself. That's a gift of love. The problem is zeroing in and obsessing over, over creation in a way that neglects God. I mean, imagine if I were more devoted to this ring than I was Jana. My precious. <laughs> That's the problem. According to scripture, we elevate our devotion to created things over our creator. So the problem isn't material, it's relational. This, and perhaps the best proof that Christianity is procreation in contrast to the Eastern faiths is that even salvation itself is described as redemption of physical creation itself. Look at Romans 8. Just listen how, how different this is from Eastern faiths. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. Creation itself is so valuable that even it will be liberated one day and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What does that mean? Well, the next two verses explain. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, the, the people of God groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our, what? Bodies. Christianity teaches, not only did Jesus bodily raise from the dead, if you're in Christ, you will bodily raise from the dead too. That none of this spirit reattaching to something greater in the universe. No, your body is so valuable to God that he will resurrect it along with a liberated creation. Hinduism and Buddhism look at Christianity's emphasis on creation in the body and they say it's delusional. It's a delusion that keeps you trapped in this world. Another thing they would say is wrong and probably just flat out nuts is this idea of the free gift of salvation. Now, this is kind of a big deal for Christianity, right? This is a big deal. It's why we remember it. It's why we celebrate it in song, in scripture, in community. We just did it today through communion. Jesus lived the life you couldn't live. He gave his life on your behalf and then rose again so you could have access to the free gift of salvation. You have to understand though, Hindus and Buddhists think it's a cop-out. You lazy human. If you're a part of the problem, you need to be a part of the solution. So man up. Woman up. Do something to earn your salvation. That's what they would say. Hinduism's three paths. Action, knowledge, devotion. All require incredible effort on your part. Here's Christianity. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done. Soak it up, church. 
you are not saved because of karma. You are not saved because of the good things you do. You are saved because, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's different. And just, just in case you missed the point throughout all of the scriptures, final paragraphs of the Bible. Revelation 22 brings us home with this theme, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Can't be much clearer. Salvation is made available to you as a free gift. What are you going to do with it? What have you done with it? We delight in this idea, or we should. We should, but you need to understand. You need to try to see what is problematic about it to Eastern religions. They see it as lazy. And for some people, it's the very reason they can't embrace Christianity. You work with people. You neighbor next to people. You may be related to people who believe this. What are you going to say to them? What's your answer? And then there are some, there are some that work through some of the details and they find it appealing, okay? I was reading a story this week of a Hindu man who came to faith in Jesus. And the thing that got him was the story of Peter. He viewed Peter as a complete and utter failure and wondered how in the world, how, how can Christians put Peter in the echelon of great leaders of your faith when he failed his leader. He failed Jesus. He denied Jesus. From his Hindu perspective, he wasn't devoted to his master. And yet, he couldn't get away from the idea that that same master died for Peter. Because see, this Hindu man knew all kinds of gods. Gods of power, gods of knowledge, gods of judgment, even gods of surprise. But he'd never known a God who was willing to give himself up for failed human beings like Peter. <laughs> and he ends his story by saying, in a failed human being like me. The idea of gift, uh, the idea of salvation as a free gift, it's old news to some of us. We've heard it over and over and over, and it just kind of fades into the background. But you need to hear, some people see it as the very reason to reject Jesus. I think, and I believe Scripture teaches, it's actually one of the most beautiful things about it. And with that, we will pick it up next week with Islam. We're going to spend the whole day on Islam. So we will see about 50% of you next week. <laughs> Go Chiefs, you're dismissed.